This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Matt Chrisman about his co-authored book, The Chapo Guide to Revolution, a Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason, co-authored with Felix Biederman, Virgil Texas, Will Meneker, and Brendan James. It was illustrated by Eli Valley and John White and published with Simon & Schuster in 2018. Matt Chrisman is one of the co-hosts of Chapo Trap House, a hugely popular and rather influential podcast. The Chapo crew uh, includes the above authors, although the uh, traitorous uh, Brendan James was uh, purged for in some sort of Stalinist removal and uh, evidently replaced with Amber Ailey Frost uh, in the past few years. Um, for the uninitiated, Chapo Trap House is a comedic political podcast that has been branded as the dirtbag left. Uh, if you haven't listened, check it out. With a solid dose of scatological humor, it's not for everyone, but I think most of these listeners will find it to be some of the smartest political and cultural criticism around right now. Mr. Chrisman has appeared in a number of related podcasts and regularly hosts a stream where he takes questions and basically rants about uh, stuff ranging from the politics of the American Civil War to the spiritual side of hallucinogens. On the Chapo uh, podcast and in these streams, he displays an impressive command of history and frequently grounds his analysis in historical context. So as a historian, it's something I always uh, appreciate. He also put out a few special episodes of Chapo Trap House called The Inebriated Historian, um, the best of which offered a very informed and insightful discussion of fascism. And there was also a wonderful episode on sewer socialism in the upper Midwest. The Chapo Trap House, or excuse me, The Chapo Guide to Revolution is a satirical work, but much of it is grounded in historical research. Glenn Greenwald said of it, uh, this book is intellectually serious and uh, analytically original as it is irreverent and funny. It deserves widespread uh, readership, substantial discussion, and all the gushing and angry reactions it will inevitably provoke. Uh, Tim Heidecker called it Howard's Inn on Acid or some shit like that, which I think is maybe the most amazing book blurb ever. Um, Matt Chrisman, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you attended um, uh, Carroll College in Wisconsin. Did you, did you major in history? Yeah, I was a double major in history and English writing. So what, what, I mean, what drew you to history as a, as a young Matt Chrisman? I was a, uh, essentially a weeb for the Civil War. Uh, like other people were enjoying Star Wars and Pokemons, and I was, it was the Civil War. And that that fixation sort of expanded to be more broad than just that era but that was it's it, it, it structured my relationship i guess to to academia and uh and my interests uh and you know I, I that's what led me to pursue it yeah what 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 about the civil war i mean was this as a teenager i mean we I mean, you know, like no, the, the like a, a very young kid, like, and, and, and uh, yeah, the military stuff is usually what gets like a young guy historically interested in the civil war. But, uh, 
Uh, and it, it, I guess it was just something about the, the drama of it and all that. But uh, over, yeah, over time, it, it became more involved than just caring about which regiment was where or whatever. But that's certainly how it started. Yeah, yeah. And then um, how did your historical thinking evolve since then? I mean, what, uh, once you... Well, I, I don't care you know? about, I don't care about <laughs> battles as much as I used to, that's for sure. I, I, don't, I don't fixate on the minutiae of military history. <clears throat> the way that I did, and it does seem like that sort of, that is an often an entry point for people, but at some point you you know you you recognize the the limitations of that, or you decide actually this is the stuff I really do care about that that i i I eventually found that it it wasn't able to sustain my interest yeah i mean when when did you sort of make that transition from thinking about history as sort of the, the minutiae and the stuff um to history as a more analytical project? Um, uh, it was college. It was the experience of, you know, actually trying to academically study the subject as opposed to just read about it. Yeah. Uh, and that made me, you know, just the challenge of having to, rather than explain something that happened or reconstruct a narrative to, to step back and offer some sort of underst- uh, uh, attempt to understand why it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what did you do with history since? I mean, not much. I I, I was a uh, failed grad student, essentially. I I went to grad school uh, for history, but... Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. But uh, And I I was pretty disenchanted with it after the first year, but then I got a teaching assistantship for the second year, so I figured I'd just do that. And at the end of that, I realized, okay, this this is not really the specific situation of the school I was in and, and what I was studying, I was not finding any, I was not finding a reason to be it. So I, I left and I never, I didn't do much with it, honestly. Uh, it, it, I just, uh, I kind of wandered around. Uh, but now I, I'm getting a chance to, to come back to it, which I'm appreciating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, all of us who've been in graduate school at one point or another, um, understand that horror of the first couple of years and uh not sure why i plugged along um i kind of felt like richard gear at the an officer and a gentleman you know i've got no else to go go. (laughs) i mean that's certainly why i went to grad school in the first place yeah but i think when i was there i realized that uh i would i would have needed more i would have needed a different combination of subject and, and and essentially I, I could not keep doing it just because I didn't know why I was doing it. And, yeah. and I just stopped instead of really interrogating it. And that yeah. was sort of a pattern for a long time with me. <laughs> yeah. And professionally, it's probably the dumbest thing you could do. Oh, so, well, yeah. Pursue a doctorate in the humanities. Um, oh, yeah. And the job market just... Yeah. It's just... It's, <laughs> I probably really shouldn't go there, but it is... It is um, yeah. Uh, a contradiction of late capitalism that we are producing so many uh, PhDs in the humanities and are not supplying uh, viable career opportunities for all of them. But um, we don't need to go there. Um, what, uh, what did you want to, what did you want to focus on then in, in terms of subject? I was, I mean, I was an Americanist, but I mean, partially just because I'm terrible at foreign languages <laughs> and just, it was never going to be, an, it was always a non-starter that I was ever going to, do any academic work that involved translating things. Uh, so I was sort of stuck with, uh, you know, England or the United States and, and with that civil war grounding America stuck with me. But uh, I, as I studied America, the, my time interest sort of shifted forward from the civil war uh, toward to the 20th century. Uh, and uh, now I would say that I'm most interested when I, when I examine American history recently anyway i've been in like the post-war era although now i'm 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 drifting back to the civil war again from the other side after having all you know these other uh thoughts and 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 projects now I'm, i'm i'm thinking of coming back to the civil war era anyway as a as something to study more rigorously yeah, my wife's a, a big fan of your your stream and said that um, you've actually been talking a lot about reconstruction lately and yeah, together like a reconstruction book club or something or a reading a reading group. Yeah, well, the general I, I want to do a reconstruction book club with 
the stream as part of a broader project that I'm hoping will come up together next year where I do something where uh, just a, a, I was inspired by a book by Phil Cunliffe about, uh, that came out in 2000, the, for Zero Books in 2017 called uh, Lenin Lives, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. essentially what if the Soviet uh, project had more than anything, what if it had linked up with the German revolutionary project post war world war one uh and yeah it i'm a huge alt history fan i've read a number of way too many harry turtle dove novels for example uh and right now i think the interesting academic element of it or at least you know intellectual element of that sort of project is is uh injecting contingency into history in a way that is not wish fulfillment or uh, moral uh, judgment, which is, seems to be about like what most people, what the project of, of history seems to be now looking at the past to, to, to pick the good guys and the bad guys and things like that. Uh, I, I, what I really want to do is, is, is look back and ask the question seriously. And the thing is, I don't really know the answer. How different would things have been in America if Lincoln had not been assassinated? Because one of the things about being a Marxist historian is that you, or a Marxist historical, using Marxist historical analysis of all, is that you end up finding at every point while analyzing the history, uh, you end up fixating on, as you should, the, the structural uh, predeterminers of behavior or of, uh, of, of, the, of outcome. Uh, but there is this matrix always where, where uh, material relationships and trends created by them intersect with the random ex- realities of, of life. And for the most part, that intersect, the randomness is eventually just over-determined enough that no individual event can, can be said to have had some, you know, some alternative timeline hiding within it because something else would have come along to prevent that from happening. And I suspect, and I'm hoping to tease out whether to what degree I'm right uh, by going back and really doing a thorough uh, look at the scholarship on just what could have been different. And if it was, why it would have been. Uh, and, and essentially to say, what were the other things happening? What were the other trends that were eventually sort of defeated, extinguished, uh, co-opted, subverted, uh, in the process of America, abandoning reconstruction and embracing uh, industrial capitalism the way it did. Yeah, I mean, it's this, that's this massive what-if moment in American history. And, uh, yeah, and I think there aren't that many of them, you know, because we look back at stuff like, what if this had happened? What, like, people talk about the Kennedy assassination. People talk about uh, the, uh, the, ter- the, um, the turn away from uh, radicalism within the labor movement after World War II, uh, uh, or the Wall, or you know Henry Wallace's uh, uh, VP status with, relative to Roosevelt's um, uh, health, and all of those to me just seem like whatever change would have been resulted by a different outcome would have been neutralized by every other strain, every other over-determining factor within American history. Yeah, there's like certain and, certain parameters sort of channeling exactly. actions. But where, with Reconstruction, it's like a whole paradigm shift, right? Exactly. We had this situation where, where the constitutional order had been f- destroyed uh, and half the country was under military occupation with, a, with a f- almost a fully unified or largely unified you know, northern uh, investment in the political project. And what that political project was, I think, uh, is, it is potentially could have been significantly different. And it's sort of a, for one of a nails type uh, method, start from the presumption, instead of having essentially the worst person on earth to be president during the <laughs> beginning of Reconstruction, what if it's a guy who over the past four years had proven that in the specific crisis of American of the civil war to have been almost uniquely qualified to be there had kept being there. <coughs> yeah. No, I, I, I find that period really fascinating. So I, I, my work is on Southeast Asia and a little bit on North Africa with the French colonial empire. And I'm doing work on cold war and, 
and uh, images of uh, mass uh, mass violence and genocide. And I, you know, I, I didn't study much American history in, in high school. I'm from Hawaii, where the Civil War is like the most exotic thing ever. Didn't didn't learn much about Reconstruction for some reason. Didn't learn much about that as a graduate student. And then a few years ago, found myself uh, teaching in China at a university in Shanghai uh, in the summer and got assigned an American history class, which I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And reading the sections on Reconstruction, I was like, oh my God, why, why didn't anybody tell me about this? I mean, it's such this incredible moment where, you know, just the stats on how many um, black legislators there are in the 1870s that we don't see again till what, the 1970s? Yeah. I mean, yeah. just so many moments for again this radical radical paradigm shift um well what in terms of um historiography what what historians influence you and what uh how you know what sort of schools of history are you drawn to uh i'm i mean uh, i mean obviously i i i like uh you know the marks i i i'm i don't know it's interesting i i I think of myself, you know, as a Marxist, my approach to history specifically. Uh, but at the same time, I really enjoy popular history too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, also in like non-Marxist material history. Uh, I'm a big fan of the world system stuff like Wallenstein, mm-hmm. uh, the book Escape from Rome by Walter Scheidel that came out uh, a couple of years ago. I finished, I, I, I was hugely impressed by, uh, but in, like in terms of Civil War stuff, uh, you know, Foner, obviously, uh, Du Bois, uh, and if you're the book that just kind of started it all for me, honestly, uh, in terms of providing a, a, a baseline to build from was, uh, McPherson's battle for prior freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I know nothing about the civil war stuff, <laughs> um, but the, uh, you get me excited when you talk about world systems. Um, Andre Gunderfrank is he in your, your list of guys. You gotta love your Gunderfrank. Yeah. Give me that Gunderfrank. My, my, it drives my graduate students crazy. And uh, they, they point out that he argues with himself in the footnotes. And, <laughs> and of all the books I assigned in my uh, graduate seminars, it definitely has the most exclamation points. <laughs> well, you should always be arguing with the past version of yourself at all times. So I support that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, I know that... Uh, I know you're a big fan of um, Marx's 18th Brumaire. Um, mm-hmm. why, why is that text uh, important to you? And, and what, what value do you find in it? The main thing I get from it is that uh, as someone who, is, who approaches you know, political questions first from the historic grounding, you know, that's where I got my first interest in sort of understanding you know, how human society works and, and, and things like that. Uh, it was from history rather than from economics or philosophy or anything like that, is that it, while I obviously love all of Marx's, like most theoretical works, uh, there is something uniquely enjoyable about reading his, uh, his historical stuff. Uh, and, and the Brumaire is, is his most uh, uh, in, enjoyable, uh, just as like a prose, pro, as, a, as a piece of prose, and also as a representation of how uh, his, uh, historical analysis, in this case, you know, very recent history, obviously, but, but, uh, but how narrative analysis of an event uh, can be used to generate broader uh, uh, insights that can be applied uh, more generally. And yeah. I think that for a lot of people like me who, 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 who might struggle with a sort of uh, disembodied uh, uh, conceptual approaches to political economy that uh, that a grounded historical one can be a great opening. I mean, you wouldn't want to end there, but it's a great way to introduce someone to those ideas. Yeah. What um, I mean, what specific lessons are from from that text? I mean, well, the, the uh, one thing that's the thinking. Uh, one thing I'm a, a, I I really love in that book, and that is useful and this is not necessarily even theoretical as much as it is is you know broadly as political is that uh is the inherent is is the uh is the focus in that book on the uh the conflict within bourgeois rule uh and because i think that is a a element that gets elided when you are thinking and 
in terms of you know broad notions of a like Dujard class dictatorship as you know the model of the state and like that's true and accurate but it if that is just sort of a broad you know idea that is not interrogated it ends up allowing you to lose valuable understanding of of how what we think of as you know political outcomes are 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 generated not by necessarily a conflict between two classes but a conflict within the broader uh, ruling class because of different uh, because of their uh, different com- uh, competing uh, uh, the competing systems of profit that they that they uh, orient around like uh, and and that that mean that those conflicts have to be subsumed somehow and the process by where uh, Bonaparte uh, Napoleon the third subsumes all the conflicts within the broader uh, French bourgeois, and then and, and then and then ascends over them uh, against the will of any of them, any group of the of the bourgeois themselves, uh, I, it is uh, important and especially important to understand the current moment and American pol- politics, uh, because I like the so many questions about like, tr- uh, for example, like the the specific meaning of Trump as a as a political phenomenon. Uh, can really only be understood in the context of interclass rule conflict, not as like a broader, uh, uh, you know, political issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I know that you've made some comments about uh, the 18th premier being useful for understanding Trumpism, but also not being useful sometimes and like sort of being misinterpreted. Um, what, what are some of the bad takes on history that you've seen or, or, or maybe particularly irk you? I would say that the main thing that irks me, not even a specific take is a, or rather a general uh, uh, attitude towards history is, is the, is the search for the good guys and the bad guys. And I, I fully understand why that, that happens. Uh, and it's a way, and especially if people you know, want to use history as a jumping off point to discuss with other people, the, that, those sort of questions are assured to, to evoke you know, a response because people have strong feelings on these. But, uh, and it's not to say that there aren't bad, good people in history. Obviously, there certainly are. But that the focus on that, the focus on that as the sum of understanding history ends up alighting and, and it obscuring all of the forces that constrain and, and in many cases predetermine the decisions that, that political figures and the historical figures make. Uh, and that a lot of people resist that insight because they think it lets them off the hook or something or, or, or lets off the people who have benefited now from the crimes of the past off the hook. And I really don't think that's, that's only the case if you're not, doing anything other, you know, than, than, uh, than trying to see who the good and the bad people are. If, if history should be to under, if history matters because it helps you understand the present. Otherwise it is just, it's just stories that you like reading about. And so if, you, if that means if you can cleanse yourself of a need to judge and that helps you find and identify the uh, material grounding and the material predetermining for outcomes in the past, it can help you see it more around you in the in the moment. Yeah, no, I, I really uh, feel you on that. Um, pushing back on that good guys and bad guys search, and re- now I realize how much that colored my education. Um, I was born in '67, high school in the early '80s, and undergraduate in the late '80s, and you know, so much of the discussion of Cold War mm-hmm. was good guys and bad guys, and just destroyed all levels of nuance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, arguing for, you know, like, well, yeah, there was pretty good health care in the Soviet Union. <laughs> Doctors were, were plentiful and, and, and there, were, there was child care. Um, you know, it was just like anathema. You couldn't, you couldn't say that. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then on the flip side, as I got into graduate school and uh, I was at UC Santa Cruz, you know, um, when Angela Davis was on faculty and my, my advisors, you know, former Maoist and got this, and, you know, I'm studying imperialism and I get this. Uh, this very radical critique of this history I've been studying previously. And unfortunately, a lot of that nationalist 
uh, global South narrative of imperialism is about good guys and bad guys once again. Yep. And, um, you know, it's just, okay, we, we, it's the bad guys are the white folks now, right? Um, but we, we, you know, now the field is getting beyond that, but um, it really is, it, it is a detriment to the development of sophisticated thinking and just nuance, just nuance. Exactly. And, and specifically with the, with the, the colonial stuff, like, I'm sorry, but if the bad, if the white, if the white people are just the bad guys and they also have to this moment, control of uh you know the levers of the political of a uh, world economic system and 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 their badness is some sort of permanent uh uh creates some sort of permanent barrier between between the people who make up broadly the white beneficiaries of empire and everybody else then then there can be then there's no reason to believe that the future will be anything else than the further complete you know, annihilation of, of the biome and, and the just frantic piling up of, of surplus on behalf of these exploiters because they're the bad guys. What else do you expect them to do? Right, right. Um, I, I could just throw random history questions at you all day, but um, uh, let's talk about the book for a little bit. Um, what what were you trying to do with this uh, this book, uh, this Chapo Guide to Revolution? Um, I mean, it it um why why did you guys write this book uh i think it's because we we our show was coming you know our show blew up very quickly in the in this in this lead up to the 2016 election and and then trump won to everyone's shock and, and yeah, the, the the live cast of you guys when trump won is um yeah, that that's must see TV. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was uh, maybe it was maybe it was Will or you, but made the comment about well, this destroys our business model. We, you know, yeah. we were gonna we were gonna spend four years owning Hillary, and now yep. we have, like this, like you know, the, in the you know, sort of the Trump can be the death of comedy in so many ways because it's it's. I mean, this is a cliche that's been belabored, but but go on. Uh, and. And we had this, you know, new audience of this disease and we felt like it would be good for us to be able to get something out that would have more, uh, you know, and be more thought out, perhaps more rigorous, more, uh, and, and more easily uh, understandable than like the relatively loose uh, and largely contextual uh, uh, nature of like a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the understandable, I think, is something... Uh really admirable about uh what you what you guys bring and and uh making making a lot of complex ideas accessible mm-hmm. both with uh plain speak but also with humor and um getting people to you know stick along for the uh the potty humor um but um uh there's you know there's some good there's some medicine coming in with that uh with that honey or sugar or whatever the right whatever the hell Mary Poppins said. I don't know. I don't know my English history, but um, what, so, I mean, what's the, what's the point of the book? I mean, the, so, okay. I mean, the, there's the, the famous review, right? Where somebody called it the dumbest book on socialism they ever read. Oh yeah. But, but, Shout out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> friend, friend of the pod. Right. Um, but um, like, like the work of Marx, which isn't really about socialism or communism, Marx is writing about capitalism, right? Marx right. is writing about history. He's got very little to say about what's going to look, what things will look like after the revolution. I mean, just a few lines here and there. Yeah. Your book, without, you know, spoiler alert, I mean, it's, it is in the same way as it's a Marxist critique in the sense of like what Marx talks about, not necessarily methodologically, um, but it's a critique of, of all this crap that's, that we've been going through for, you know, the past few years, and then it's longer historical roots. And at the very, very end, there's a couple of very, like, lovely, heartfelt pages of imagining a better future. But like Marx, it's just sort of, that's out there. But here's the critique of what's going on right now. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, we're, 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 yeah, we're taking that idea of, of just trying to take, like, we, we, essentially we wanted to take, you know, the, the experience of living, you know, for a young person, and, and, or, or specifically a young person who listens to our show already, uh, that demographic, and, and the world as they understand it, and, and slide it, slice it into, like, broad uh, tranches, and then sort of put them under a microscope. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's look at some of those, uh, some of those tranches. Um, the, there's a chapter on liberalism, on the libs. Um, again, very much grounded in history. Uh, you do this for both the libs and the conservatives. What, what are the sort of the key moments in the historical development of liberalism uh, for you? Um, well, I'd say like the one we live in, and I, 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 I don't know if we really got I mean, I, my thinking has developed a lot since we wrote the book on a lot of things. So and I, I don't think if I, you know, rewrote it again, it would be the same book, certainly. And, uh, and, but I think we were trying to get across in that book. In that section is the, is the, is the nature of, of liberalism is less about uh, any kind of, uh, like, a, a, a triumph over time over, uh, oppression or like even a taming of capitalism so much as the ever expanding creation of sort of a cultural superstructure around capitalism to validate it, to give it, to give it a uh, buy-in essentially psychically to the maximum number of people. And that in doing so it creates these sort of casts of, of, of mandarins within the different uh, technocratic, realms of control both politically and media wise uh and and that the election of trump really sent a lot of them into a into a deep existential horror because trump was exactly what all of those things exist to prevent happening yeah yeah um what but like historically are there any sort of uh important moments in in this narrative i mean the um, I mean, obviously, it all uh, it starts with the Constitution, and 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 specifically the me- the way we remember the Constitution, we remember the process of of the founding fathers coming together to to forge a nation, and and the and the fetishization of procedure that came out of that, regardless of the outcome of that procedure. Right, uh, but of course, the, uh, the, yeah. the sort the Sorkin. Yeah. Sorkin aspect of American history. But I'd say that, that if we want to trace the roots of liberalism as a as, as a hegemonic idea now, the real starting point is is the progressive movement of the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and I'd say like brought into its fullest articulation by the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. That's things like the income tax and uh, the the creation uh, uh, of the Federal Reserve, uh, and of course during World War One and Aliens Edition X. A, or espionage acts, uh, it was a package of reforms designed to to not subordinate capitalism, but essentially coordinate capitalism uh, to to maintain stability in a way that the individual actors within capitalism, specifically the individual capitalists, were unable to do themselves because of the fact that they are all in competition with one, with one another. Yeah. What, um, on the flip side, uh, for the conservative movement, um, uh, you, you do a great job of showing the historical development and the, and the frustrations of uh, conservatives over the course of the tw- most of the 20th century and then their, their rise and uh, starting with the 80s. What, uh, what are the key points there? Uh, I, I mean, it starts with, honestly, I think like American conservatism is, 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 is essentially the, the activization of, the the lizard brain American conception of freedom, which is the, the idea that, that there is such a thing as un, that of an ungoverned life, but that, that, that a person can be, in a sense, uh, independent of a social structure and still benefit from social goods, uh, which was only ever viable even as an intellectual concept because of the specific nature of American development and the massive amount of land that was always available to be expropriated. Uh, Settler colonialism and settler genocide. Exactly. Constantly yes. and, feeding that, right? And yeah, and, and that, the, that, that it's essentially the American id, which is 
times being battling and, and being constrained by the, the superego of liberalism. Uh, uh, and its modern manifestation comes as a reactionary response to the New Deal, uh, the same way that the first reactionary movement in, in uh, modern uh, European history happened after the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Rick Perlstein's books on the rise of the conservative movement and it's taking over the Republican Party from Goldwater to Reagan, I think, are some of the best at tracking that trajectory. And that era specifically uh, is, I think, the crucial uh, proving ground that would eventually create a more and more uh, powerful uh, and uh, extreme political tendency. Do you think that compared to liberalism, that the conservative conservative movement has a much more grounded material objectives, whereas liberalism just become, at least in the past few years, really about culture and identity debates? Well, the thing is, is that they're, they're both, uh, both liberalism and conservatism are, as political projects, they kind of have to end up being about culture. Uh, like conservatism is now like Trumpism is all just cultural grievance. Uh, there is no any all the gestures towards any real material uh, critique of globalism or American capitalism are as vestigial, honestly, as uh, any of the critiques of you know, the one percent or or corporations that come from Democrats and the, from liberals more broadly. Uh, the the thing that animates you know, voters on both sides and the politicians, uh, at least in their rhetoric, is, uh, is this continued sustained cultural conflict because the actual material economic project is bipartisan and operates without uh, any adjudication by the either party uh, or, their, or their, their voters. Because as long as you only have two parties and as long as the, the question of you know, the broader economic destiny of the country is not up for debate, which it hasn't been in this country since the 70s, then all we can have is cultural conflict. <clears throat> yeah. Um, how about the American empire? What, um, how, how do you see the American empire as operating in, in history and uh, comparisons with other empires? Um, I, I was listening to, I think, uh, maybe it was Trash Future uh, recently, um, and they were talking about uh, uh, Amazon and um, comparing it to the East India Company, which was, uh, uh, <laughs> I thought, a thoughtful uh, point. Yeah. Um, what, um, like what's, it, the, how, how do you, you know, let, let's go 200 years in the future and we're historians. How do we go back and sort of contextualize the history of the American empire and com- make comparisons? I think that what you said, Fred said about the East India Company is, is, is very indicative of the proper approach, which is to understand the American empire as not an American empire, but as the continuation of a broader capitalist project that started in, in the Netherlands and then uh, the United Kingdom in the 16th and 17th, or 17th and 18th century. Uh, and that, and that uh, we, are, we took the baton basically from them after World War II uh, and that the American uh, empire has been a, uh, a mechanism for ensuring that, uh, that the resources of the world broadly uh, will be priced in a way that ensures that the inheritors of that empire in the United States and the West more broadly uh, are the uh, consumers of surplus. Uh, and, well, the people who actually live where resources are uh, are will always be the uh, exploited uh, extra, uh, extra uh, the exploited sources of surplus, either materially or in the form of labor, that are then uh, exploited. And then it's it's globalized, right? And then yes, these things are beyond the horizon, and that makes it much easier to hide some of these contradictions and these most grievous aspects of. Uh, uh, ex- labor and resource exploitation. Yes, yes. That that it's a that it is it's a it's it's a unit, and that really like the political conflict we see in America, such that it actually exists uh, at the at the level of things like you know globalization and and uh, and protectionism between the parties, is basically one of those intra bourgeois civil wars 
between uh, the Republicans broadly, the lumpen billionaire class of, of, of uh, sort of restrained, uh, geographically fixed capitalism in America, like uh, uh, re, uh, petroleum and, and natural gas restriction, uh, extraction uh, and, uh, you know, uh, retail and, and, and uh, things like that, opposed to the Democrats who are more broadly uh, influenced by uh, transnational uh, capital, like finance capital, which, I mean, broadly they're on the same side, uh, but there is a conflict of interest between them. And more importantly, there is a conflict of understanding of how this system works. And one of the big ones is, one of the big drivers is a fundamental misapprehension on the part of you know, the lumpen reactionary uh, uh, conservative bourgeois, that there is such a thing as American capitalism, that there is such a thing as the American economy that could be, that could be disaggregated from the global flow of capital. Uh, well, crucially, this is the important thing, that that could happen and that they could stay on top of that system, that they could continue their role as, as, as uh, rentiers if the United States was somehow uh, fundamentally removed from the influence of, of global capital flows. Well, it's, it's a bizarre, like, it's a bizarre sort of ill-understood rehabilitation of mercantilist thinking, right? Yeah. That, um, I mean, the, 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 the Trump attacks on China and some of the things I hear people saying, I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense. We're not economic well, competitors. I mean, we're, we're the thing is, is that, the same systems. I mean, how would, but, but none of our politics actually operates off of that assumption. Not, not, nobody said, nobody will say that even like, but, it's, but it's, it's the undeniable material reality, right? Sure. But like, we don't live in that in America. You don't have to live in a material reality. That's, that's what all that <laughs> surplus pays for. All that surplus pays for your ability to live in as far as far removed from material reality as possible which more and more people are doing one way or the other. So, so Trump can tweet out uh, anti- things about Chinese trade on his, uh, his phone and sub in China and not have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah a little bit about the book, the, the writing of the book. How, how'd you guys do this? I mean, it, uh, what five of you put this book together? Did you, did you have certain tasks? I mean, you, on the show, you sort of play the role of the, the historian. I mean, you, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, uh, did you guys divide this up? Did you do the historical research or? Yeah, well, it was sort of, it was essentially, yeah, brought, it was divided by pref- who wanted to write about what. And then the way that we generated it is largely through group discussions. We would, we would get together and say, okay, we're writing about, we're talking about this. What do we want to say about it? And then we would kind of talk it out the way we do on the podcast. But then instead of just recording it and having people listen to it, we took those notes and then we would have specific members take that and then turn it into something more, uh, more rounded out. Yeah. And, and why, why do a satirical comedic book about, about these, these issues? I mean, what, I mean, okay, this is your job. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, but, that's but sort of, you know, philosophically, like what, what does, what does humor bring to this conversation? I think it, it broadens the audience for the critique for one thing, because, uh, because, and that has been the key to our success the entire time is that, is that we make it more entertaining. And of course, at a certain level, even dry academic analysis of political economy is at, at this point in time for most Americans entertainment, because what practically are you going to do with it? Even after you get it, uh, uh, that's a question that nothing that nothing within our consumption can tell us. It has to come from within ourselves, and that's a challenge that uh, is, you know, individual and very difficult. And and it means that pretty much everything we're consuming, even even at its most rigorous and 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 serious, is fundamentally an entertainment product. And if that's the case, then it should probably be more rather than less entertaining. <laughs> and uh, and humor helps. It helps. Uh, it keeps, it makes people want to stick around for something that is not necessarily funny. And it helps contextualize things that might not be as easily understandable. 
Uh, it, it's the, it's like you said, it's the spoonful of sugar. Yeah. But also just from all of us, we don't have any other way of talking about it. Like we, we, we are driven by a uh, background, by predilection, by the fact that we all found each other in, on Twitter doing jokes that, that we have this desire to make people laugh. That is as fundamental to our, our, you know, will to, to power as our uh, um, political convictions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you, do you have a sense of how you or the, the Chapo project uh, fit into sort of the history of comedy? Do you, do you have a sense of what comedic traditions you see yourself a part of? Um, I, I think a lot when I think about you guys, I think a lot of like various French provo- provocateur. I'm going to be mm. uh, pretentious there. Like, I mean, most recently being Charlie Hebdo, I mean, this, um, the, uh, you know, just throwing rocks at everything. Um, but also, you know, 19th century, the work of Dalmier, the, the French caricaturist with his caricatures of Louis Philippe as the pair mm-hmm. um, or, or Rabelais. I mean, Chapo is very, <laughs> has this very Rabelaisian moments, right? I mean, you would make yeah. him proud. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, like uh, my co-host Amber wrote, a, wrote, a, wrote in her article that she wrote that coined the term dirtbag left, she referenced the Re- French revolutionary uh, pornographic cartoons as, as, as a, as a uh, historical antecedent. I, I got I to look that up because that makes me so happy. I, I uh, published a, uh, something in the Journal of World History about two, three years ago on uh, pornographic cartoons in French colonial Hanoi. And uh, how the how the fret, how you can read white male culture of Hanoi um, that's not recorded in the archives through these cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what what do you know what, what that was in? What that? The oh, I was? believe it was the Baffler. Okay, yeah. And so she coined the term "dirtbag left." She did. Yes, I was. I was wondering about that. Like, if I mean, how do you how do you wear that? How do you feel about that term? I feel like the term itself has sort of served its purpose. It, yeah. Essentially, after, especially after Trump won, there was an explosion of interest in socialism and leftism uh, in the cultural sphere. And uh, there's a lot of baggage to those concepts that left a lot of people in a position of anxiety between their desire to speak, their desire to consume media, and their desire to appear as, to themselves and others, as virtuous. And the conflict, and that that left a lot of people uh, wondering what to do, and, and and there were different sort of paths to take. And and one of the one of the emergent ones was a five alarm uh, critique of like the the American culture most broadly as inherently racist, uh, uh, misogynist, you know, uh, ist in every sense, and that that's what Trump came from, and that that needed to be fought. And that's not necessarily wrong. But in the context of a bunch of people trying to find their political identity online at the same time, the risk there is, is that those shibboleths and those uh, expectations of behavior end up becoming alienating the some and to those who enjoy them, uh, cynical cudgels and ways to advance individual uh, profile and authority within, within some emerging you know, subcultural space. And and dirtbag left was a was a broad label and easy to word descriptor to provide people who were kind of in that matrix uh, with a road with a la- with a brand essentially that they could co- uh, coalesce around. But at this point, you know, post Bernie, post uh, post now Biden, post Trump, now almost, uh, I feel Inshallah. like yeah, I feel like the uh, the necessity of that is reduced just because uh, that moment has passed. And now we're much more broken up into, into tranches as, as consumers of media. And as such, I don't think we need to really have uh, labels in order to uh, you know, uh, guide people. I think people can kind of tell. People know where things are. Hmm. What, what about some of the critiques of uh, your guys' irony? Um, and I mean, it's, this is irony laden work, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, I know that some on the left uh, have um, had a problem with that and, and interpreted it as nihilism. Um, mm-hmm. oh, what about yeah. the, some of the dangers of irony. 
Uh, I don't know if there really are any, honestly. I feel like everybody got mad at irony is essentially mad at connotative meaning. And I think, mm. and it's not their fault. Like, fault is not, that's what I've been trying to do personally is, and, and I mean, I've, I've got a big hole to dig out of because Chapo is very judgmental inherently because that's part of comedy is finding, <laughs> finding targets for ridicule and you have to feel like you uh, aren't a bad person for ridiculing someone and the only way to do that is if they're a bad person. And the thing is, you know, there are a lot of evil people in the world, but what, but uh, I think for a lot of people who appear very vexing in their, uh, in their wrongheaded critique of humor as a concept, it, a lot of it to me boils down to the fact that as we spend more and more of our, our, of our lives mediated and as our emotional lives are more and more mediated and, uh, and translated into the sort of the ether of, of online spectacle, that uh, the ability to get any meaning from a word, a sentence, a meme, or whatever that is not within the text itself becomes impossible. Because what, what the way that irony is is useful is the only way that it works is that the person using it and the person hearing it have a shared context for the word, so that beyond the plain meaning, the ironic meaning is legible and information on the internet is stripped of context mm-hmm. and everyone is coming to it completely separate from it and for a lot of people uh irony appears to be appears to be racism appears to be reactionary because the connotative meaning is invisible to them yeah yeah no that um that's spot on um are you optimistic I mean, the, the book ends on an optimistic note, and I mean, it, where, where are we going? I, I found that the best way to be optimistic is to realize how beside the point it is to either be optimistic or be pessimistic. Yeah. Because any broad social trend that we're talking about, like where we are going, is fundamentally beyond the power of any one of us to affect, beyond our just lives. But the question of what to do in our lives, the question of what to do every day that we're alive, every minute we're alive, the answer to that question, I think, can be found much closer to you than a abstract idea in your head about what the future is going to look like. And so the best way to be optimistic is to find a reason to live close to you. And everyone, I think, can find that, but they have to look. And... And one of the real dangers of online politics is it abstracts away from your life, your understanding of what you should be doing with it, because you feel the, the enormity of the horrors of the world are so grass that they have to be stopped, that you have a responsibility to stop them. And while we all have a responsibility to our fellow people and to ourselves to, do, to, 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 to seek out right and to, to help one another, that we can do that independently of whether things are going to be bad or good. We can do that no matter how things end up. And that's because we have no idea. None of us really know. And that should be liberating or can be. And that, I think, is an alternative to either a, a, uh, like an optimism that I think becomes brittle over time or a pessimism that just becomes a, a soporific and a, and a depression matrix. Yeah, yeah. The... Um... The, the again those last couple of pages in the book um, I thought were really, really, they really hit home to me. And I mean the book is just like, you know, beating up on all these things I just hate so much. And and, and seeing someone articulate them in a the critique in a smart way with a good dose of humor. But like as you know, I'm getting into 250 or 200 something pages into it, 250 pages into it. Um, it's starting to grind me down and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to go down that path of just sort of pessimistic and nihilistic thought. And then those last couple of pages, I mean, I thought they were really, really beautiful. Um, oh, thank you. And it, and it reminded me of, of um, some of the things I've heard you guys say during the, at least during the primary campaign, there were a couple of live performances where you gave like these sort of optimistic from the heart, know, optimistic, but like just sort of from the heart appeals. And this was part yeah. of mobilizing the vote. Um, that um, I, I wish that many of the, especially on the left, critics of, of you guys' project would pay attention to those moments because they really were um, 
I think it really pulls the rug out from underneath that critique of, oh, it's just this ironic nihilism and, and, and potty humor. Yeah, it's, 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 I think the nihilism charge comes mostly from liberals. And yeah. I think what it boils down to is that our fundamental argument is that the system as such cannot generate anything other than misery and more misery over more time. Uh, and to a liberal who is devoted to the idea that the system is inviable, the system is, is, is the, the questions of, of its, uh, you know, being replaced have been saw, have been shown by history uh, to be beside the point. And if they, and starting from that premise, that hearing this system can only produce misery, it has to be nihilistic because the system is all we have. And our insistence is that no, like we actually do. Don't tell me how, because nobody knows how, but we have the capacity as people, as a species, to prevent that, to, to create, to, to replace this system with one that is able to provide dignity for all, uh, but not within the structures of the system itself. And the liberal identity is bound in the idea that, no, my, my, my collaboration with all of the worst monstrosities of the system is morally validated by the fact that it is preferable to a more reactionary, more miserable version of this system that my interventions are preventing. And so, but to me and to the rest of our, uh, of Chapo, that is nihilism. That is the nihilistic view. That is the view that says doom is inevitable because there is nothing any liberal has ever said. There is no project. There is no critique and certainly no history that says that within the liberal tradition is any hope of human emancipation. And without that, without that like kindling at the heart of your politics, you are functionally, even if you're not aware of it, a nihilist. Look at Neil Cadillac. Look, look at Mr. Resistance, Obama's solicitor general, going before the Supreme Court to argue that, uh, that child slaves should not be able to sue corporations that purchase the result of their labor. And, and the, the, the response to any moral condemnation of that is someone's got to do it. And we say, no, no, they don't have to do it. And you sure as hell don't have to do it. And if you are doing it, it's because you are benefiting from this system. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been really generous with your time, and I've got just a couple more questions. But um, we, we talked a lot about American history. Any aspects of sort of international history that um, you, you find really, really important and, and useful lessons? I, you had Vincent Bevins on um, a couple of months ago. I, I interviewed him too, and his book on the Jakarta method is just so One, yeah, it's great, so book. great, and I was so. I mean, my highest compliment to that I can make about that book is I just seethe with jealousy that he wrote it. Yeah. I, spent, I spent 30 years studying Indonesia. He was there for three years and wrote a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic book. Damn him. But, um, you know, such as the fourth estate. Yeah. Um, what, 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 you know, you guys talk about Operation Gladio a lot. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just Felix and his, uh, his, uh, <laughs> his gamer brain mentality. Well, the thing, but, the thing is, is that Felix hates NATO with a furish, furious passion and Gladio yeah. was an explicit NATO project. So yeah. for him, it, it's just, it's too, it's too much to ignore. He has, he has to come back to it. But yeah, we, we uh, I mean, broadly the, the, the history of the cold war is, is, is something I find very interesting and I, I try to read as much about it enough. And uh, one of the things that I think Jakarta Method is really good about doing is recontextualizing the Cold War away from our understanding of it as an ideological contest and towards a resource battle. That, that is what the, that was what uh, the Cold War, which, I mean, you really just want to call it the Third World War or just the continuation of a, con a world conflict over resources that began in 1914 with the World War I, uh, that, that, and that it was won broadly by Western capitalism. Yeah, yeah, and the, I mean, it would, I think what's so brilliant about that book too is the making the connections. I mean, we, we, you know, we all knew for years that the overthrow of Allende was called Operation Jakarta, but that he actually went out and did the groundwork and showed those connections, and mm -hmm. um, that you know the the graffiti campaign of Jakarta in in uh, Chile and also I think in Brazil and elsewhere. Yes, I mean, it just yeah. it, it it makes you re rethink. I mean, there's so much literature on international communism and not that much on international anti-communism. Yep, yep um, absolutely. And the funny thing is, is that uh, the, 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 the 
uh, America pretty much gave the game away because you know the the drumbeat of the Cold War was that we were fighting an international communist conspiracy, and the fact is we were not. I mean, the China went to Russia. China fell to the to communism, but within twenty years, Russia and uh, China were uh, <laughs> enemies. Yeah. And there was there's in fact there's an argument to be made that Russia and China came closer to having a nuclear war with one another at the height of their uh, conflict of the '60s than the Russia and the United States ever did. Uh, and 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 the Soviet intervention in third world anti-colonial struggles was spotty and haphazard. And uh, and by the seventies, China was so pissed at the Soviet Union that they were they were one of, for example, the first governments to recognize uh, Pinochet in Chile and and mm-hmm. to fund uh, our like apartheid backed psychos in in Africa. I mean, there if there would that there had been an international communist conspiracy. What there was was an international capitalist conspiracy, which was manifested in things like Gladio and, uh, and Operation Condor. Uh, and I mean, just the, my God, just like the funk, the economic architecture of the Bretton Woods system that emerged after World War II. That was, a, that was in, 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 in boardrooms and, and, and uh, CIA safe houses and barracks across the world, a conspiracy to, to, to marketize the, the produce, the surplus of the world's resources. Yeah, yeah, and then, and, and and with with that China, uh, Sino-Soviet split, I mean the uh, the poorly understood third uh, third Indochina war, where Cambodia gets turned into a proxy war between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Yeah, um, communist states fighting amongst each other. Cambo- <laughs> China invades Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, yeah, China. Who remembers all, all, all this? Can sort of forgot about like, oh, that that was odd. But moving on, you know. And by the way, Vietnam also kicked their ass. <laughs> you know, I, I lived in Vietnam in the 90s and went up to, uh, to Sapa and uh, that region. And, and you can still see signs there. And also the locals were very proud of that. And, uh, um, but, the, um, you know, the, uh, the Third Indochina War and the war amongst these communist states, I mean, that inspired Benedict Anderson to write Imagine Communities mm-hmm. um, to make sense of this uh, bizarre uh, turn in, in what, what Cold War thinking had had told us was going to happen. Um, and then, yeah. and then, you know, the absolute insanity that uh, because it, things turn into a proxy war, the United States then becomes a patron of the Khmer Rouge. And the United yeah, that's States my favorite thing about keep it. The Khmer that's Rouge my favorite going thing through it. the 1980s. I mean, yep. That, yeah. Thing. Thatcher and Reagan airdropping uh, machine guns and stuff into the, into Pol Pot uh, and, and uh, arguing that they should be Cambodia's UN re- representative. Uh, yeah, just too perfect. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's difficult to teach this stuff to my undergraduates because they don't believe me. They're like, I, I, "Come on, yep, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That, that, come on, Doctor Van, that didn't really happen." Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, man, absolute pleasure to talk to you. But um, two more questions before I let you go. Um, can you suggest two books on anything? Two books that are really important to you that you'd urge the audience to uh, to read. Oh man, uh, oh boy. Uh, uh, I just finished Cloud Splitter by Russell Banks, uh, which is a novel about, uh, it's a novel from the point of view of Owen Brown, John Brown's uh, uh, son, the one who survived. Uh Uh, And uh, I think it's a a great book to read for the moment uh, to understand more than anything, to understand the the necessary role of uh, spirituality in political Mm. understanding and activism that I think is is largely absent because, as I have said, people are communicating and creating politics in a space of, devoid of the connotative meaning that comes from emotion and emotional experience, mm-hmm. and that that needs to be uh, re- resurrected. Okay, that, uh, that, so that's Cloud Splitter by Cloud Splitter, yeah, by who? And uh, I mentioned this, and I've said yeah. this on my stream before, and yeah. I love it just because it's so unlike every other like history I have broad history that I have. Uh, uh, Anal- uh, scene uh, it's and uh, is in that Wallenstein world systems tradition Walter Scheidel's escape from Rome mm-hmm. simply because it is an attempt to do not Marxist but but materialist history in a way that is very difficult to find because outside of the Marxist tradition it seems as though there is like an, a historical allergy to a materialist reading there is there's this terror of feeling like you are being deterministic. Like that's the word mm-hmm. that everyone wants to avoid having applied to their work. But what Scheidel does is he, he doesn't care. And that's very invigorating because 
in my mind, I'm sorry. At some point, something has to determine things, right? Or they don't happen. And mm -hmm. Scheidel, I mean, and the broader materialist tradition that I, and I don't think that there's anything necessarily incompatible between Scheidel's analysis of the rise of capitalism in Europe uh, uh, and the Marxist one. I would say the only main difference is just one of uh, perspectives. I think that Scheidel is broadly uh, like a, a uh, he's broadly pro-capitalist and sees it as like this, this, uh, this explosion of, uh, of efficiency and productivity that like rises people out. And the thing is, it was that at the time. Uh, and the, the, the further questions of what comes next are separate from any, you know, specific uh, 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 value judgment you might put on the process. Uh, but his, his fundamental willingness to, to take, you know, geographic uh, uh, considerations into account for, the creation of broad historical uh, social trends is 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 great, and, okay. uh, and I that's think escape, we need, we need more Rome. of that. I'm sorry, yeah. escape from yeah. Rome. Yeah. Okay, um, and what are you working on now? Anything we can hope to see from you next? Anything in print? Not in print right now, but I've got a couple of things that I'm hoping to start writing in the uh, next month or two. A couple of articles, and then I want to. Uh, take a lot of the stuff that I've been putting in uh, a number of the streams I've been doing on Twitch specifically since the election and turn it into some sort of short volume uh, that is like, will be my hope, my contribution to sort of the what next question um, that a lot of people are asking now about, about, you know, the trajectory, American political trajectory, not necessarily what, what, uh, what will happen, but what, what needs to happen before anything can happen, basically. Uh, and then longer term, something, I want to do something, and I don't know what the form will be yet, but something with the question of what if Lincoln didn't die? <laughs> he would have uh, been a vampire hunter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I know. Um, okay. Hey, Matt Christman, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this has been a conversation with Matt Chrisman about his co-authored book, The Chapo Guide to Revolution, A Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason, published with Simon & Schuster in 2018. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Thank you for listening.